Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, cast your eyes back upon our text for today, which is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Today, my focus will be upon particularly verses 33 through 35. And as you're looking at that text, I want you to also be thinking with me, at least briefly, about the the emotions, the feelings, the sentiments of, of Christmas, the ones that we that we anticipate, the ones that we enjoy, the ones that we think of. Think of a list. What are the the emotions, the feelings of Christmas? Maybe your list includes excitement. The excitement of children. Children who just can barely contain themselves as as the minutes tick away and as you draw closer to Christmas morning. And Johnny and I, years and years ago, we taught Sunday school at a church by the name of White Oak Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and we had a young lady in our class, and uh, this young lady now, of course she's, because we're very old, uh, this young lady is, is, is grown, and she has a family, and she has two children, and one of her children is a little girl, she's about this tall, and she posted a video of her little girl on Christmas Eve, and her little girl right there in the living room, right beside the Christmas tree, is just jumping up and down, up and down, and twirling around, twirling around. And our friend said, we've reached the bouncing up and down stage of Christmas anticipation. Don't we love it? Don't we love it when we see the excitement on the face of little ones? Maybe excitement's one of those feelings. How about tenderness? Tenderness. I was listening to Al Mohler's last uh, podcast before he takes his Christmas break from his podcast, The Briefing. And uh, as is his practice on that last podcast, he, he talks about Christmas. He talks about the Christmas text. And he said, at, as he was nearing the end of that particular podcast, he said, as you're reading the Christmas text from Matthew and, for, and from Luke, he said, don't miss the tenderness. Don't miss the tenderness. Don't miss the tenderness between Joseph and Mary. And don't miss the tenderness between the exchanges between Elizabeth and Mary. And don't miss the tenderness of old Simeon cradling the baby Jesus in his arms. He said in in such a coarse and rough and harsh culture and world, he said, don't miss The tenderness, and that tenderness can be convicting, but it's one of those emotions and feelings that we we love. Excitement, tenderness. How about love? Yes, as uh, Pastor Nick preached that Christmas Eve message, love is the center 
of Christmas because Christmas is about the gift of love, the Father's gift of the Son, the gift of love, Jesus, uh, the one who is love, Jesus, the one who is the definition of love, the love that saves. And then all human loves, if they're rooted in that divine love for sinners such as ourselves, any human love is then a beautiful Christmas ornament, excitement, tenderness, love. Well, maybe it's all Oh, think of the little child who is looking, uh, glazing, with glazed eyes, looking at that Christmas tree and the lights, just in awe of Christmas. And we think of the shepherds, right? Who were in awe of the angelic host, that army of angels that came, uh, such an awe that they were afraid. And we're told, fear not. Excitement, tenderness, love, awe. And how about joy? What do we sing throughout Advent? What do we sing then into Christmas? We sing that great Advent carol, joy to the world. Joy, we love that word. We love that feeling. We love that emotion. And it's hard to describe, isn't it? You know, it's happiness, but it's more than happiness. It's deeper than happiness. It's something more. It's an inner contentment. It's an inner satisfaction, knowing that God is blessing no matter what the circumstances are. Joy. It's laughing around a table with loved ones and friends. It's that emotion, that feeling, when you lay your a sick head upon the shoulder of someone who loves you and is taking care of you. It's that sense of wonder and, 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 and happiness and inner contentment and satisfaction as you're looking at a winter sunset and you see the pinks and the oranges reflected in the clouds. Joy. Well, how about peace? Yes, peace. Conflict and struggle, they're over. What a dear old Simeon saying. You see it there in the text, don't you? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in what? Peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Excitement, tenderness, love, awe, joy, and peace. Yes, these are the emotions, these are the feelings, the sentiments of Christmas. But how about one more? How about pain? How about hurt? How about sadness? For all the excitement, for all the tenderness, love, joy, awe, and peace, we all know that at Christmas there's oftentimes the tear that falls. We, we, we know there's pain. We, we, we know there's an emptiness, a sadness, don't we? And we know it all the more since it's 2020, right? We've lost loved ones, haven't we? Just talking to Bobby about he's, he, he just has lost a, a friend of so many years who within three weeks has, he's died of COVID. We've witnessed conflicts in families, in communities, over the craziest of stuff. 
battles over this and that. that and, and all those sort of conflicts have been just made all the worse under the health and financial and emotional strains of the pandemic. Now, something of the blues does work its way into our cultural consciousness when it comes to Christmas time. I mean, and it has through the, through the years. I mean, even Elvis did what? He sang of what? A blue, blue Christmas. But we really want to kind of make, uh, make that go, go away as quick as we can. And we want to turn to what? The, the holly jolly Christmas. We know there's that pain and that sadness, but let's not talk about it. Let's move on. Let's move on to the joy and the happiness and all, all the excitement. And we see something of this dynamic even at work with this text. At least how the church has come to this text through the years. You see, the church really does like and has liked, and for good reason, we've liked the song of Simeon. It even has that Latin name to it, right? The Nunc Dimittis. And it's been sung, it's been chanted by Christians through the centuries because it's so beautiful, right? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words, your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. We've sung it, we've chanted it, we pay attention to it like we did last week, but we don't pay as much attention to the benediction of Simeon. Pay attention to the song, but then when it gets to the words of the good words, the blessing, the word of benediction that old Simeon pronounced upon Joseph and Mary and Jesus as he's looking into the eyes of Mary. We don't pay as much attention to that because it's, well, it just doesn't seem to fit as nicely. Verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Okay, we're okay with that, but let's, let's notice what he says. And Simeon blessed them and think, oh, good word, this is going to be great, it's going to be beautiful. But what sort of good word is it? And said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is what? Opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We don't pay as much attention to that benediction, but we should. We should. Yes, there's sweetness in the light of excitement, tenderness, love, awe, and the joy of Christmas. And yes, we sing and long for the peace that the angelic host heralded so long ago. But that peace came, and it comes, and it will come through tears, through pain, through sadness. For the cross always comes before the crown of glory. 
One minister put it wonderfully well. He preached, he wrote, How does the surgeon bring peace to your body if you have a tumor in it? The surgeon spills your blood. The surgeon cuts you open because that is your only path to health. He continued, he said, how does the therapist or the counselor help a downcast and depressed person? Often she does it by bringing up the past. Putting the patient, getting to the patient to confront painful memories and terrible feelings. You see, the surgeon and the therapist and the counselor often have to make you feel worse before you can feel what? Better. And this little babe in the arms of old Simeon would one day even himself say, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. So which is it? Peace, as the angels heralded, or a sword? It's both, dear ones. But it's in this order. The sword that brings peace. Notice Simeon's words very closely. Very closely in verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is what? Opposed. Now what did he mean? He meant that Jesus would divide. Jesus would be polarizing. Some fall, some rise. Brothers and sisters, Jesus always polarizes. Always. There will be those who oppose the light. Or as Jesus would say, there will be those who love the darkness rather than the light. There will be those apart from His grace they will ignore, disdain, despise, hate, and oppose Him. But by grace to others, Jesus is what? He's light. He's, he's love incarnate. He's altogether lovely. He is salvation. You see, some what? Fall. And some will rise. And if you rise... If you're one of those who sees Jesus as the light, as your salvation, altogether lovely, if you rise, know this. It will cost you. It will cost you. Your spouse could leave you. Your parents could disinherit you. You might lose your job. You might lose all the influence you used to have with friends. Profess faith in Jesus, 
live for Him, love like Him, and you will know the sword of division. You will know opposition. For Jesus always brings opposition. He divines. Now don't go around being obnoxious. Don't go around being self-righteous. Don't go around being pugilistic and, 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 and just picking fights with others and then stepping away and saying, hmm, they don't like me. They're offended by me because I'm a Christian. No, <laughs> they are offended by you because you're a jerk. Don't be a jerk, right? But if you identify with Jesus, if you identify with His people, if you try to humbly follow Him, brothers and sisters, and some of you already know it, opposition will come. Some of you are already facing it. Some of you have already faced it. Opposition will come. If it's not here now, it's coming. Dear ones, there will be a day when you will be considered as an intolerant bigot. You will be opposed. You will be hated. Even while you love. Even when you pour out yourself again and again in love. Even while you serve and get down on your knees and do things for people that are just self-giving. Even while your heart breaks with grief for those who oppose your Jesus and you. In the lyrics of a song that I love, when they talk behind your back, when they deny what a true friend you have been, when they don't understand your concern, when your gestures of love are unreturned, when you look at their faces and love and know it's not absurd. Now why does such opposition happen? Why such hostility? It's pretty simple, brothers and sisters, if you know something of the fallen human heart. When you confess that Jesus is Lord and King, you are saying you aren't. And you're implying that others aren't. You know, they don't like that. When you say Jesus is the Savior, you're saying you're a sinner and you need salvation, and you're implying that other people are sinners and they need salvation, and people don't like that. And when you say, brothers and sisters, with the Apostle Paul, that you're not your own, you've been bought at a price, and that others shouldn't try to be their own Lord, well, people who suppress such truths, they aren't going to be what? Pleased. They're not going to like that. They don't want to hear all that. They don't want to hear all that. And sometimes you don't even have to say it. Sometimes you don't even have to say a word. The late R.C. Sproul told this story. I believe he first gave it in his book, The Holiness of God. 
He said a few years ago, one of the leading golfers on the professional tour was invited to play in a foursome. And in this foursome, there was Gerald Ford. Now, some of you are old enough to remember who Gerald Ford was. He was president of the United States for a short period of time. He was invited to play in a foursome with Gerald Ford, then president of the United States, Jack Nicholas, and Billy Graham. The golfer was especially in awe with playing with Ford and Billy Graham. He had played with Jack Nicholas before, but it was especially in awe of going to get to play with Billy Graham and, and, and the president. And after the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and he asked, Hey, what was it like playing with the president and playing with Billy Graham? And the pro just unleashed a torrent of cursing. And in a disgusted manner, he said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And with that, he turned on his heels and he stormed off and he headed for the practice tee. And he got out his driver and he just started pounding golf balls. Pounding them. And after a while, he had gotten out his fury. And his friend, while he's watching him pound those golf balls, hadn't said a word. He's just sitting and watching. And the guy got out of his fury, and, and after a few minutes, his friend said quietly, Was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, No. He, did, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round of golf. Astonishing. Billy Graham hadn't said a word about God. Billy Graham hadn't said a word about Jesus, about religion, and yet the pro had stormed away after the game, accusing Billy Graham of trying to ram religion down his throat. Now how can we explain that? It's not difficult. Sproul continues, he says, Billy Graham didn't have to say a word. He didn't have to give a single sideward glance to make the pro feel uncomfortable. Billy Graham so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence was enough to smother the wicked man who flees when no one pursues. His very presence brought opposition. Dear ones, if you identify with Jesus Christ, Remember, Jesus is the sword that divides. Remember the words of Jesus again when He said, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And He continues, and this hurts. It hurts particularly if you've got loved ones within your own family who don't love Jesus. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This babe within Simeon's arm was and is the sword that divides people. But why? Why does the glorious God-man, Jesus Christ, divide human beings? He divides for the ultimate good of His people. You have to go back with me all the way back to the book of Genesis. Go back to the fall of Adam and Eve. Go back to Genesis 3. And when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, when they listened to Satan's voice through the serpent, they realigned themselves. They broke alliance with God and they realigned themselves and they forged an alliance with Satan. And what did God do? Did He abandon them who had abandoned Him? Did He say to them, Oh, okay, if you, if you want it that way, if you want Satan, have at Him. Bye. Done. Did he? No. You remember the words from Genesis chapter 3 in in the curse upon Satan. There's there's a beautiful verse there. It's known as the Proto-Evangelion, the the first giving of the Gospel in in, in sort of shadowy form. And it says this. God says, I speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, that is, those who follow you, and her offspring, and those who follow him, I will drive a wedge between this unholy alliance. Or, to use the imagery of the sword, I will wield the sword and I will cut the chains that are binding you to Satan. And I will do it for your good. Because if you remain bound to Satan, where are you going? What is your end? I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to put a stop to it for my people. He divides that he might save. He divides that he might take those who have formed an unholy alliance with Satan and his minions so that he can take them away and reunite them in an alliance with Almighty God. And take them from being slaves and servants to Satan to being sons and daughters of the Father. Of the Father. Why does He divide? So that He might bring what? Peace. Reconciliation. Between a holy God and sinful human beings like ourselves. Amen? But there's more. Jesus is not only the sword that divides people, He's the sword that penetrates our hearts. Verse 35, and He's looking right at Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
Now, old Simeon's being a prophet there, and he's prophesying, and he's looking right into the soul of Mary, and he says these words, and I don't know if he fully understood them or not, but he's saying at least two things. The first thing is easy to understand, although he didn't fully grasp it, I'm sure. But he's leading us to the cross. And remember at the cross, who was there? Who was there watching her baby boy die? Mary heart was being pierced as Jesus' hands had been pierced. She was watching her baby die. And no parent ever wants their child to die before them. That's part of it. But there's something more. There's something more about this benediction. And there's something more is, uh, about this piercing. And, and the something more is, is, is something I think we share with Mary. You know, Mary, for all of her beauty and wonder, and she's presented to us as an amazing character in the pages of Holy Scripture, but she's not, she's not presented as someone who is without sin. She's a sinner. And you remember the stories in the Gospels. When, when Jesus has begun His earthly ministry, He's beginning to preach and crowds are gathering and healing and He's saying all these amazing things and claims about Himself. And what happens with Mary and Jesus' half-brothers? They say, what in the world is going on with Jesus? He's been out in the sun too long. Right? And they come thinking He's kind of got off His rocker. Something's wrong with him. He's, 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 we gotta, you're embarrassing yourself, Jesus, and you're embarrassing us too. We've got to come get you. And they come. And disciples say, Jesus, as he's, as he's teaching, your, your mother and your brothers are out there, right? And what's Jesus say? Do you remember? He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about... At those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now imagine you're Mary and you just heard that. What has just happened to your soul? What has just happened to your heart? It's been pierced. He loved her, but with those words, he had done what? He had rebuked her. Why? Because she, meaning well, had tried to stop his ministry to save that which was lost. And in so doing, she's seriously wrong. Imagine her hurt. Imagine her, her confusion. Imagine her pain. Imagine her, her inner conflict. Imagine the guilt as she heard those words. And particularly later on, as she would reflect on those words after she realized that her baby boy who was crucified was resurrected and everything he had said had been true. His sword had pierced her heart. He, he had touched her where she was wrong. But why? to divide her from her wrong thoughts, from her attempts to control him. 
from her sin. Christians, true Christians, will have such wrong thoughts and sins. You know that, don't you? Our hearts need piercing too. We need the sword of Christ to pierce our heart and convict us of our sin. That we might confess that sin. That we might be separated from that sin. That we might be divided from all that is wrong within us. All that is wrong in our thinking, all that is wrong in our speaking, all that is wrong in our doing, that we might be separated from that. Within the breast of every single believer, there is a conflict, there is a war. And we're all wrestling with sins that we need to be convicted of, and we need the sword of the Spirit to pierce us so that we might be severed from such sins. And so we might experience not only peace with God, but peace of the what? Of the soul. We have peace with God. And through the convicting work of the Spirit, through the mighty Christ piercing us with the sword of His Word, we are being sanctified to know more and more of peace of conscience. And dear ones, know this. It's painful. But it's the pain of the surgeon of the soul. It's pain to heal. To heal. And who is the surgeon of the soul? Who is the one who bears this sword? He is the one who's crushed the head of Satan. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who himself was cut off. Notice the words cut off from the love of the Father so that you might experience His sword, so that you might have peace with God and peace of conscience. So on this last Sunday of 2020, look to Jesus, for He wields His sword because He loves you, because He wants you to be reconciled with the Father, and He wants you to experience deep soul peace. Let's pray. Lord, at the end of the nine o'clock service, I said that we pray a dangerous prayer And we're about to pray it again. Father, through your Spirit, may Christ's sword be wielded. May it divide us from all those who would drag our souls into hell. If they are not going to be believers, O Heavenly Father, protect us from those who would harm our souls. And Lord Jesus Christ, may your sword pierce our hearts 
for you are the one who was pierced for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.